Well, um, open your Bible to Luke chapter 1. I want to do what we did a few weeks ago. Thank you. Sort of a running commentary. We've got a long section, and uh, the narrative is challenging to look at unless you look at it in one piece. Otherwise, it takes, you know, years and years and years to go through the gospel, which wouldn't bother me because I'm godly. But <clears throat> um, I'm joking. It's a joke. Um, but what I want to do is sort of a rabbinic approach, and we'll walk through it and take it apart a little bit at a time and make a running commentary. It's a long passage. It divides in two sections in John, uh, excuse me, Luke chapter 1, verse 57 and following. It's the birth of John and uh, what is called the Benedictus. The Benedictus is the first word in the, the Latin, the Vulgate. And just like the Magnificat, some of these words kind of hang on. It's sort of like when we uh, read Psalm 23, it's hard to take the thou uh, out of certain passages, even though you would be a better word. We get ensconced in certain things that are important. And our translators often like the word Benedictus, besides sounds kind of cool. So we uh, bring the Latin word in. But it's the birth of John in verses 57 to 66. And then verses 67 to uh, 80, really 79, is uh, really a message to the boy and what his life is going to be. And verse 80 is a very important summary that Luke uses throughout the book. Luke is extraordinary, not only in his literary uh, width and depth, but the way he gives us these transitional flags and very important markers in his gospel, which makes it all the more intriguing. Now, the parallelisms between John and Jesus are extraordinary. And one of the things that I will, uh, in my last breath, I will encourage people, read your Bible every morning. Study your Bible every day. Uh, Find some time where you can hole up and commune with God's Spirit and God's Word and you know, God's third greatest gift to man, which is caffeine. You know, that his greatest gift is Jesus. The second greatest gift was air conditioning. And the third was coffee. <clears throat> and um, that's, that's right in the Bible. And um, these, these parallelisms you can't see unless you sort of hold the Bible for a while. And take a sheet of paper out and write some things down on a journal and a pad. If you've never done living by the book, those kind of things. But my longing is a, a part of a Bible church is that it will not be something you have to come and hear us talk about for 32 minutes a week, but it will become the texture of your life. Just a few of them, uh, they, would, they would take, there's, there's hundreds, literally. Let me just give you some high ones. An angel named Gabriel visits Zacharias to announce what's going to happen to him, and he's going to have a son in his elderly age, and his wife way past childbearing years. The infertile Elizabeth will get pregnant. An angel Gabriel visits a young virgin Mary, who's not married. You got the continuum, an old, elderly, infertile woman, a young, unmarried virgin. And so the angel Gabriel visits her and announces that she is going to have an even more miraculous birth than Elizabeth. Mary is going to become pregnant. She will go and visit Elizabeth. And the coalescing of that story is a marvelous passage of where the Holy Spirit has come into two women's lives in unique ways. And as they meet one another, there's a Holy Spirit connection that is unique in all of the, of the Bible. Um, 
Mary then will have a magnificat, her song, her canticle, her praise back to God for all that he has done to this lowly servant girl uh, who he chose for no good reason other than his grace and favor toward her in Israel. And then we read now of John's birth and John's circumcision, which we'll talk a little bit about. Zacharias will then have a song, a canticle, a praise, uh, his benedictus. So Mary has hers, John has his. Uh, the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary, angel Gabriel appears to John, each of the, uh, to Zacharias. Each of those will have a canticle, a song about the birth and the experience. Um, so Zacharias Benedictus, and then we'll have Jesus' birth and circumcision. And this is just a few. If you took two pieces of paper and just started writing the parallels, you'd be blown away. And what's called a chiastic device, the old Elizabeth, the young Virgin Mary, those type of things are all fraught and wrought in this passage. We come to the birth of John in Luke chapter 1, verse uh, six, uh, 57. Let me, let me read. You follow in your Bible. Luke chapter 1. Let's pick up the story of verse 57. Now, the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth. Again, Bible study students. Therefore, in Paul... You're looking for markers like this in, in Luke. In verse 39, now at this time Mary went. Verse 47, now at the time had come. These are markers. They're trans Remember, these stories were told without verses and, and notations. They were orally communicated. And so now the time had come. It's, you know, the old meanwhile back at the ranch. For those of us who watch Westerns, you know, there was a transitional thing. Now movies are too crazy. You don't know what time. It's about six weeks ago, four months ago, and they go in and out. It's nonsense. You need to know where you are. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. We have one verse about his birth. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy upon her, and they were rejoicing with her. And it happened on the eighth day when they came to circumcise the child that they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. But his mother answered and said, No, indeed, but he should be called John. They said to her, There's no one among your relatives who's called by that name. And they made many signs to his father as to what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows. His name is John. And they were all astonished. And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he began to speak in praise of God. Fear came upon all those living around them. And all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them kept in mind the saying, What then will this child, and really it's a gloss, What then will this child be? Or we might say, What's going to happen to this boy? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. So verses 57 to 66, we have the birth proper of John. Now the fulfillment of the promise of God here is inseparably linked to the coming of Messiah. And you've got to put on, if you can, some first century Jewish Hebrew ears to hear this story. It really is important you go back in time and understand, and I'll try and help us what that means, but you've got to listen the way they would have heard it. Now John's conception 
um, is a great miracle. Jesus will later talk about no one greater. And if you step back and think about if the Messiah is going to come, you want a pretty important person to announce his arrival. Um, there's a man named Bill Livingood, and unless you're a very strange politically interested person like me, you wouldn't know who Bill Livingood's name is. But Bill Livingood, I think coming up on 50, 40 some years now, 40 years, is the one who when the president gives the State of the Union address comes, comes down the aisle and says, Mr. Speaker, the president of the United States. And then go, goes crazy, you know, which is all, of course, show. But anyway, um, Bill Livingood is the guy that gets to say that. Nobody else. And you think he owns that baby? They're going to have to pry that office out of him. I mean, they'll probably be wheeling him in a wheelchair. He'll want to say that because he's the one guy that gets to say that on the, in the United States. You want somebody important. You have dignitaries and diplomacy, the diplomats. A friend of mine was at Andrews Air Force Base. He was a, a two-star at the time. And uh, every head of state from every country that got off a plane at Andrews Air Force Base, he had to be there no matter what time of day or night. And he was the one that welcomed that person to the United States of America. He was over all the operations at Andrews Air Force Base. You see, you've got to have somebody important to make important announcements. If you're going to introduce the God of the universe made in flesh, you want a pretty important person to do it. So God's going to use a unique man born to an elderly righteous couple named John. Uh, John's birth is uh, in a close-knit community. If you notice verse, verse 57, his friends and relatives are there. And we get a glimpse of the first century. And you keep in mind, a small village, a small, if you've been overseas, if you've been in the Middle East, if you've been in Israel, a small street, if you will, with lots of people living in small houses and small, you know, two and three story buildings. And they all know she's pregnant now and they know she's about to have a baby and the friends and relatives are all there excited about this close-knit community. Verse 25, go back to chapter 1, verse 25 for a second. Remember when Elizabeth's pregnant, she hides for five months. This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked upon me with favor to take away my disgrace among men. Remember we argued, I argued a few weeks back that her infertility at her elderly age was a sign that something was wrong and God did not open her womb and bless her. And now he's taken it away and she hides for five months. Think about, you know, Elizabeth's seclusion is different than a teenage girl's seclusion. A teenage girl's seclusion is embarrassment and shame and rumor and trying to explain how she got pregnant. And boy, try to explain how Mary got pregnant. Good luck. Elizabeth's pregnancy is very different. And when she comes out, let's say four or five months, she starts showing and she's showing herself. We'll see in this passage, this is the way God has taken away her shame. Elizabeth the elder's seclusion would be joy, shock perhaps, but joy, where Mary's will be suspicious and rumor-causing. Now, for the first century Hebrew ear, this is going to run back to the Abrahamic covenant. A little bit of a stretch to get us there. It would take some time. Take it by faith. What they knew from the Abrahamic covenant was the descendant of Abraham would be king, would be Messiah. 
They understood a promise that was given unilaterally to Abraham, to Abram and Abraham, that he will be the father of many nations. And the Abrahamic covenant is going to be in such a way that Messiah will come through. We'll later learn about the throne of David. The Messiah is going to come through David. But the, the ancient Israel Hebrew ear was better with their history than the current American is with his or her in our nation. They have all the distractions we have. They have the information flow we have. They had stories that were told and repeated to them. And a good Jewish household made sure their kids knew these stories. And Zacharias and Elizabeth are sure two good Jews who know these stories. So they followed the law. Genesis 17 as part of the Abrahamic covenant. What was the sign God told Abraham to do as a sign of the covenant? Do you remember? Circumcision. Get the snickers and the giggles out. Just get them out. So on the eighth day, every Jew born is to be circumcised. The male and his foreskin of his flesh are to cut him. A covenant was what? To cut a covenant. All these things are very important. You cut a covenant. Remember I've used illustration where the Indian and John Wayne, they cut their hands and they shake their hands and now they're, they made a covenant, a blood covenant. What are they saying? If you don't keep your part of the deal, I kill you. If I don't keep my part of the deal, you kill me. We're brothers now. We, we have a blood covenant. And so cutting in the Hebrew was always a sign of the covenant. You cut a covenant. So now God's making a covenant that's very visual. And the Hebrew who on the eighth day circumcised is a person who's still following and believing in that promise God made to Abraham. This is not just some religious ritual. This says, I believe God will someday bring Messiah because he made a covenant to Abraham called circumcision and we continue to practice that covenant. And we'll see Jesus, of course, on the eighth day will also be circumcised. This ritual surgery is to remind him of God's promise. Over time, Zacharias I believe, had communicated to Elizabeth what the name of the boy would be. Naming, of course, we've talked about. It's very important. You name a family name. You name a, some event that's gone around a person's life. We, we name in America for lots of different reasons. The Jew named very deliberately. And if you read the genealogies, you'll see the ben, the son of, and amin, and all these different appendixes and suffixes and prefixes that carried those names. Even in Rome, you had dozens of Caesars and Herods and Augustuses and Philip and Philippi. There was a relationship. You, some of you are maybe a junior or a third. That's the idea. So the relatives have opinions about names. You have the experience when you named your son or daughter? We did. The relatives had some opinions about names. What? You're going to call her or him what? Where does that name come from? Which is another story, sermon for another day. But Elizabeth says John. And others objected, verse 63. John? Where's John come from? Um, and so they asked Zacharias, and they, he asked for a wooden tablet which says he was communicating. It was a piece of wood in antiquity, and they put some wax over it, and you scratched on the wax. Sort of the early edition of the Etch-a-Sketch. And so he scratches on their very important grammar in your English Bible. His name is John. He should have said he will be called John, because three times in the text, called, 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 nuh -uh, his name is John. Why? Because when Gabriel appeared to him, he says, his name will be John. 
This is not a negotiation. And this creates, this, this is a declaration on Zacharias' part. And look at their, their response, verse 63. They're astonished. This word is uh, got a number of facets to it. It can mean disturbed. <laughs> not just wow, but it can mean kind of ticked off. So the, the word is intentionally uh, sort of ambiguous. They're astonished. What? what? Wow. John would be sort of the reaction. And this extraordinary name simply means the Lord has been gracious. Now think about that. What was Elizabeth's concern? Take away my disgrace. I'm an elderly Jewish pious woman. His name's going to be John. So the immediate implication is God took away my disgrace. But who's John going to be? The one who announces Messiah. What was Zacharias praying for in the temple complex when he struck mute? For the peace of Israel and for a Messiah to come. And his boy's going to be called the Lord is gracious. All these things start to fold together about his destiny. Well, at the moment of this, the miracle occurs. Zacharias regains his speech. And I find it very convicting and very interesting that it says he began to speak in praise of God. I don't know what the first thing would come out of your mouth after being uh, mute for nine months and eight, ten days, but Zacharias was to praise God. That's pretty cool, I think. The effect is twofold. The news spreads and people are afraid. And fear is often a response when the supernatural occurs. Verse 66, all who heard them kept them. The phrase antecedent is they kept the words in their mind. I don't know why the NASB and other translations opt for the word mind here. It's the word cardios, cardiology. It's the heart. Now true, the Greeks sometimes talked about the viscera. Those who are with our conference this weekend, we learned about the viscera from a psychiatrist's point of view, and he was mostly right. Um, but the viscera in the Greek was sort of this part, the soft organ, the hollow organ, which would include the heart. So for the Greek, we think often of the mind, uh, their view of things. But this one kind of went to something different, this viscera here. It's the same word we'll see twice in Luke 2 about Mary treasuring, pondering these things in her cardia. Kept them in her mind, kept them in her heart. Lots going on around this baby. Angelic announcement, a mute priest, infertile elderly woman gets pregnant and presents a baby, a strange name. A priest then regains his voice and these signs and wonders spread throughout the region. So the first so what I would put in front of you, God's hand was certainly on John's life. Do you think God's hand is on your life? One of the challenges as a Westerner, and I wrestle with this perhaps just like you, maybe you don't, but I wrestle with this too, is I live my life pretty much on my own terms, do what I want, plan, come, go, do as I please. And then when I need God, I run to him. Because I'm a consumer. When you need a doctor, you call the doctor. When you need groceries, you go to the store. When you need gas, you go to the gas station for gas. When your car breaks, you need a mechanic. We are a consumer. We don't even think about this stuff. We just do it. And we're a unique culture. Consumerism. 
Everything's built on the notion that you're going to go buy and acquire and consume and use stuff. And that can't but affect our view of Christianity and our relationship with Christ. We just use Jesus when we need him. But do you see his hand in your life? You who struggle with infertility, do you see this as God's sovereign hand in your life? You who have adopted children and that's opened your eyes to a whole new set of things. Do you see God's sovereign hand in your life? Those of you who are widowed, widowers, you've buried a child, you've buried a dear friend. I've had too many funerals the last couple of months, just wearing me out, burying people I love. The sadness lingers all your life. You go through surgeries and procedures, and we live with a lot of stuff, don't we? The growing, maturing believer in Jesus Christ backs up and says, God's hand is sovereign. You don't believe this, but it's true. His hand is in your life. He loves you desperately. But do you sense it? God's word, God's spirit, and God's people are the three legs of the stool of the spiritual life. Apart from God's word, God's people, and God's spirit, you cannot know or see or understand clearly or accurately what God is doing in your life. That's why every morning I'm in the Word. That's why I pray. I'm a real consumer because I'm desperate. And when you are desperate, as I hope you are, it's not a problem to spend some time with Him. Do you ever stop to see God's hand in your life? Secondly, Zechariah's prophecy about the boy, verse 67. His father, Zacharias, was filled with... The Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. Verse 70. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. If you're a, a person who takes notes in his or her Bible, <clears throat> notice the infinitives here, the two, as well as the pronouns he and him. Verse 72, he did this to show mercy toward his fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, and here's where the narrative changes in the song. You can feel it. You can see it. He's talking in a general term of prophecy now. And you, child, so now he's talking to the boy who's just been bored. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercies of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And then verse 80 is 
Another one of Luke's devices to summarize and conclude and foretell what's happening. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit. And he lived in the deserts, plural, until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let's take a run at this. Zacharias, just like his unborn son, is filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't miss it. While yet in the womb, John the Baptist is filled with the Holy Spirit. And Zacharias, when he prophesies, is filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, I think it's important to know that when the prophet speaks, he speaks under the power and the authority of God. He speaks for God. And you'll see that in some of these references. Now, this passage is a rich recollection of lots of Old Testament references each one would take a good chunk of time to delve into. And so I'm just going to highlight a couple, but I want to start by talking about the word blessing. And again, in Latin, Benedictus Dominus Deus Israel. That's the first sentence. This is his blessing to God. What does it mean to bless God? If you're a note taker, jot down 1 Chronicles 29, verses 11 through 13. 1 Chronicles 29, 11 to 13. And look at it tonight, tomorrow, during the boring Super Bowl. Look at this passage. <clears throat> this passage, in my estimation, is one of the best passages to get a glimpse of what it means to bless God. What is Blessing is one of those words that means everything, therefore it means nothing. You know what I mean? We say, when someone sneezes, God bless you. What does that mean? If you're from a tradition, does that mean somebody does this on you? I mean, what does it mean? Uh, blessing is simply this. It's ascribing back to God who he is and what he's done. Simplest definition. It means much more, but it's ascribing. It's talking about who God is and what God has done. And that First Chronicles 29 passage is an extraordinary passage in context where David says, who are we that we could be able to do this? And what he's saying is all because of you. Everything we have is because of you. And it, to me, it's one of the most powerful, extraordinary blessing passages in the Bible to understand what it means. Bless the Lord, O my soul. All, what does it mean to bless the Lord? How do you bless God? Doesn't he bless us by giving us stuff and material prosperity? Yeah, that's part of it. But blessing at its core is a, a choice, and generally a happy choice, a joyful choice, to acknowledge who God is and what he's done. And if you name your blessings, count them one by one. Name your blessings, see what God has done. If you do that drill routinely, your whining index goes down. Your complaining scale Worst parents in the world, worst everything in my life, poor, poor, pitiful me. You know, everybody hates me, nobody loves me. I think I'll go eat worms theology. Uh, when, you, when you start seeing who God is and what he's done, that stuff starts to, to, to be toned down. So he blesses God with this long recollection. The first and major point of the blessing is that he has visited us and accomplished redemption. This is big theology. When we think of visitation, we think of somebody coming to see us or going on a visit. Or if you came up from certain churches, I was talking to someone the other day who goes to fellowship. And they said back in their tradition, if you went to a church that afternoon, that pastor would knock on your door and say, hey, you came to XYZ Church today. And they literally would go visit you the day you went to church. That kind of creeps me out. I don't know about you. But, um, <laughs> When people knock on my door, if it's not the UPS man, I don't want to answer it. Um, but they, not, they visit you. So we think visitation in a hospital, visitation hours. 
erase, ixne, all that stuff. That's not visitation. Visitation is a complex term that means you're looking after something and you're making an appearance to help. You're looking after something and you're making an appearance to help. If a man had a vineyard and he hired some help, but he was still sort of the on-site manager in the Old Testament, he would make a visitation to his vineyard all the time. He's keeping a close eye on operations, and sometimes he's helping. He's pitching in to help. Now, when the pious first century Hebrew ear heard this visitation, they didn't think about some preacher knocking on the door. They thought about someone showing up to assist, to look after, to help them, and you have to tie it together. Visited us and accomplished redemption. Redemption, of course, is another huge word. To buy someone out of prison. To buy someone's punishment. The price of redemption. Jesus redeemed our sins by dying in our place, on our behalf, instead of us on, on Calvary. He redeemed your sins and mine. Any of you grew up in an era of S&H green stamps? Any? About eight of us, you know? I mean, you know, the world's changed. But boy, in those days, you bought gas and you got green stamps. My dad traveled for a living and he got hundreds and hundreds of green stamps. And he'd come home and my brother and I would take these little books out like sticker books and you put the S&H green stamps in the book. And then you got this big catalog and you, quote, redeemed your green stamps. And you could get a car if you didn't have green stamps. Of course, no one ever did, but you know you couldn't get that many. But you could redeem, and you went to the SNH Redemption Center, and you took your little book with green stamps in it, and you and you looked at the and you said, "I want that thing," and it came to you, and you redeemed. It's a good picture. Redemption. Uh, Jesus is going to be the redeemer, and John, this great unique man, has come before him, and Zacharias sings this prophetic song that God's given him the words to say, redemption has visited. The first century, this would like be saying for uh, our culture, we have solved the economy, stopped all wars, and put a million dollars in everybody's checking account. And all God's people said, amen. <laughs> that would be Redemption. We've, we've solved all the trouble. And oh, by the way, we fixed health care, given all the doctors a big fat raise, and you can get all the treatments you need. That would be redemption. For someone to show up and visit you and solve your problem of sin, and John the Baptist is going to be the one. Redemption is to be liberated. Remember I mentioned Exodus. Exodus is the story of redemption, getting them out of Egypt and Egypt out of them, redeeming them from slavery, consecration to worship. The first century Jewish ear knew this stuff better than we know our American history. This is the one they've been waiting for. You know, pejoratively and somewhat critically, the last, our current president, when he ran, they started calling him the Messiah. Why do we do that? Because we want somebody to solve our problems. And Zechariah says, God has visited us. They understand salvation to accomplish redemption. 
Verse 70, as he spoke through the prophets, the word prophets, the Old Testament, these are all fulfillment of Scripture. God's word is not just a yawn. It is when God speaks, man should listen and heed. Verse 71, salvation from our enemies. They saw in this coming Savior redemption from their political enemies. His salvation leaves no one dead on the battlefield. If you're part of Jesus Christ's crew, if you're part of his group or company, if you trusted Christ, he leaves no one dead on the battlefield. He redeems and rescues all of them. Verse 72, to show mercy toward our fathers. What does he mean there? Well, the patriarchs have been preaching this message for hundreds of years, hoping against hope for Messiah who hasn't come. And now they're saying, he's come. The prophets were right. The patriarchs were right to stand believing God's promise in a vacuum of things happening. On and on it goes. We have no time to look at it. The address to the child is um, unique in a number of ways. The canticle, the song here changes from singing about God's blessing of the people to Israel to now this unique boy. Um, Verse 77, he is the one who's going to call him the prophet of the Most High, a unique title given to John. He's going to prepare the way, look, by giving his people knowledge of salvation. All right, let's look at it this way. You got Jesus coming soon. You need a great man to announce him. He's going to be a very weird man, as we're going to see. And this great, weird man is going to come on the scene to speak to the Jew primarily to get them ready for their Messiah. Jewish, pious, religious, good believer of the first century announcing Messiah, the president, Messiah. The real Messiah is coming. And then we get the tender mercy passage that is an intriguing passage that talks about God's unique love for us. Verse 80, he grew, he became strong in spirit, he lived in the desert, he has a unique mission and a very abnormal life as we'll see in the weeks to come. So here's the, here's the perhaps the so what for us as we conclude. He has been gracious to Israel a thousand ways, but there's been difficult and desert times. And now he's going to give them a man who's going to be the ultimate grace communicator to them, who's going to live a very difficult life in a very difficult land. And he encapsulates all that Israel is. Wilderness, wanderings, living in harsh conditions, weird compared to the nations around him, called of God uniquely, just like Israel. Starting to get the picture of this guy? He's otherworldly. And he's going to bring a message. And so I think the so what for me, maybe for you and me, God is gracious to you even in the deserts of your life. And you need to see his hand. And the question is, will you let him use you? For whatever it is, he's going to use you. 